Christ's ministry continues our verse-by-verse journey through this first history book of the church, 28 chapters, and it doesn't end. We're still living uh, in Acts 29. This chapter is a wonderful chapter. It actually covers several years. It doesn't look like it when you read it, but I'll point something out to you. It begins with Saul, a Jewish leader who wants to wipe out the believers, who goes beyond Judea, Samaria, and the Galilee region to persecute Christians as far away as Syria, Damascus, and on his way there, the Lord arrests him, blinds him, brings him to his senses, and three days later, he becomes a baptized believer, able to see again, and begins to see things differently. Verse 20 says that immediately he, this guy who was persecutor of the church, preached Christ in the synagogues of Damascus, that he is the Son of God. And all who heard, then all who heard, verse 21, were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on his name, on this name in Jerusalem, and has come here for that purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the priest? But Saul, verse 22, increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. So he just stays in Damascus. He doesn't go back home to Jerusalem and preaches Jesus is the Christ. Verse 23, Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. This many days was over three years. He eventually leads. You can see at the end there, verse 25, they let him out of the city by a basket over the wall. Uh, He escaped. But during these three years, he had actually had left Damascus, gone into the wilderness, into the desert, into an area known then as Arabia, and studied the scriptures there and spent time with God, and came back an even more powerful preacher to the point that they wanted to kill him, and he had to escape. Then he went back to his home in Jerusalem and preached Christ, and of course he had to leave there too uh, because his life was in danger. He was so powerful. And they sent him uh, to Tarshish, which was his original hometown. Now, we are going to look at verses 31 to the end of the chapter. This is a map of Israel at that time. And you have the Judean region, the the, uh, Sumerian 
region and the Galilee region, and then above that is the Syria region, the area known today as Syria. There's Damascus. It's still there today, but you can't see it on the map. So this is Peter's second missionary journey. His first one was to Samaria and back. We learned about that in Acts chapter 8. Now he's going from Jerusalem to Lydda, and then he's going to wind up in Joppa, and then the next chapter he'll wind up in Caesarea. Uh, the scriptures say he went down to Caesarea. It's down, not in the sense of going south, but down in the sense of leaving the higher ground, higher elevation of Jerusalem down to the coastland. So today we're going to look at what Peter did in the last part of this chapter, verse 31. Uh, it says that the churches throughout all Judea Galilee and Samaria had peace and were edified. They'd been through several years of persecution, and now the Lord gives them a break. And they walk in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and they were multiplied. Now it came to pass, as Peter went through all parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. There he found a certain man named Aeneas, Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ, or Yeshua HaMashiach, heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon, that's the region around Lydda, saw him and turned to the Lord. So the church there got strengthened and bigger because of this miracle. Everybody in the area around knew about this poor man, and here he is healed and walking around. What a glorious miracle. Now it shifts gears and changes the location. At Joppa, verse 36, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha. That's her Aramaic name, which is translated Dorcas. That is her Greek name. Nobody names her children Dorcas anymore, but there are some Tabithas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. She was a seamstress. She made things for people. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room, getting ready for the funeral, getting ready to bury her. And since Lida was near Joppa and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, They sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Hey, we've got this lady dead. Can you come and see if you can raise her up? But you need to come quick because she's going to stink, in other words. Then Peter arose, verse 39, and went with them. When he had come, they brought him to the upper room. And all the widows stood by him, weeping. Showing the tunics and the garments. Look, here's a blanket she made for me, which Dorcas had made while she was with them. I'm going to name my grandchild Dorcas. She was such a wonderful person. But Peter, verse 40, put them all out. All right, all y'all, get out of here. Didn't want no crying around him. He knelt down and prayed, and turning to this dead body, he said, Tabitha, arise. Notice he didn't say Dorcas, arise. Wasn't because he didn't, he knew about dorks then, but just for some reason he said, Tabitha, arise. He used her Aramaic name. She opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. 
Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. Here she is. Put your hankies away. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. So the church there, again, was strengthened, and it multiplied. So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon a tanner. The next chapter opens with him spending some time on the roof of the tanner's house. Now, why would he do that? Think about it. Dead animal hides. Simon probably wasn't the best-smelling guy. Who knows? That's that's for another Sunday. But the rooftop, the ocean breezes, time to get away. Time to have an encounter with God. Awesome. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to us today from your word in such a way that we are different as a result of today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, there is a parallel in this story that I see in Mark chapter 5. Can you turn there? The second biography of Jesus named after Peter's nephew, John Mark. It is believed that Peter helped John Mark with the details of this book. So to me, that just is a clue to why the parallel, why was the story related like this? Because it happened, but the other Gospels, one of the other Gospels tells the story, but not in the same way. You don't quite see the parallel between what we just saw in Acts 9 with what happens in the healing of the ruler of the synagogue's daughter. His name was Jairus, and he had approached Jesus. Hey, my little girl is sick. Can you come and heal her? And Jesus didn't jump and just take off right then. He had some people to heal. There was a widow with an issue of blood that needed to be healed. There was some truth that needed to be told. Some ears needed to hear the good news of the kingdom. And while he was speaking, Mark 5.35, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, now they're saying this to Jairus, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? It's too late. Who knows God's delays are not the same thing as his denials. Sometimes a delay is just setting it up for a bigger miracle. It can be that way. As soon as Jesus heard the word, verse 36, that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid. Only believe. Some of you may be facing some big trials. There's a word for you from Jesus. Don't be afraid. Believe. And he permitted no one to follow him. Now now he's going to do something about it. And he only takes three people with him. Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult a a ruckus, a disturbance. People are mourning, and those who wept and wailed loudly. Now, in our culture here in Texas, uh, we'll see emotions, we'll hear emotions, but generally it's at the funeral. Um, In the funeral home, we'll see the family. But some cultures have professional mourners that just go all out, weeping and wailing and 
and uh, it makes the deceased person look really loved and all that. I don't know that any of that was going on, but it was a tumult. What's a tumult? I'm not sure. It certainly wasn't peaceful. Verse 39, when he came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. God's view of death is sleep. The dead in Christ one day will rise first. He will wake them up. (laughs) They ridiculed him, verse 40. But when he put them all outside, all y'all get out of here. He took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him. Who was that? Peter, James, and John. And entered where the child was lying. So here he is with Peter. Peter's watching all this. The parents, James and John. He took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumai, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. And Jesus said, give this child something to eat. So review, he, he took Peter with him on this trip. He goes to where the dead child is. He makes everybody leave except the parents and Peter, James and John. He takes the child by the hand and says, Talitha kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Now, maybe you've watched Christian TV and heard it preached that the Talitha were the Talits on the prayer shawl. I'm not sure about that. The text says that Talitha means little girl. So I don't know that prayer shawls have little girls on them. So let's stick with the Bible. How about it? Talitha Kumai, which is Aramaic for little girl, I say to you, get up. And she did. He took her by the hand. She rose up, healed. Give this kid something to eat. So let's fast forward several years. Peter, who was there, who was trained by this, arrives where there's a commotion. Someone has died. And there are people weeping and wailing and waving pieces of clothing that the deceased has passed. Look what Dorcas made me. He goes in the room alone and he kneels and prays. He includes Jesus. So he's not by himself. It's him and Jesus in there. All right? He invokes the the name of Jesus. Then he speaks to her and says, Tabitha, get up. Talitha, get up. Tabitha, get up. It's parallel. Don't you see it? She opens her eyes, sees Peter. She sits up and Peter grabs her hand. She's already sitting up. What's he doing grabbing her hand? He's experiencing an amazing parallel. And why didn't he call her Dorcas? The women were calling her Dorcas. Parallel. There's parallels in our life that parallel the experiences of Jesus. If you're serving humanity, if you're being a blessing, it is an extension of Jesus' ministry. Amen? It may not be as clear of a parallel as this one is. I just saw it to be interesting. You may think it'd be trivial, but it is not trivial to understand that Jesus' earthly ministry continues. It continues through you and I. 
So for us to understand this, we need, first of all, know what the Lord was about and what He is about and what we are to be about. What was Jesus about? What is Jesus about? And what are we to be about? We're going to look at the pronouncement of what He was about in Luke 4 when He quotes Isaiah 61. And then we're going to look at four passages in John that... that that build on this theme of continuing what Jesus was about. He was devoted to helping people in need. In Luke 4, he goes into his hometown, he goes in the synagogue, he picks up the scroll, and he reads the 61st chapter of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. When John the Baptist wanted to know as he's facing his own death, he's in prison, he wanted to make sure, are you really the Messiah? He told his messengers, go back and tell John, the blind see, the deaf hear, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. He was anointed to preach the gospel to needy people. He has sent me to proclaim release, can we say freedom, to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord or the year or time of the Lord's favor. Judgment Day is coming, but right now it is favor day. So put away your megaphone and stop condemning people on the streets and proclaim God's blessing and the opportunity for them too, like us, to come to the throne of grace and to find help in time of need. There's a song I love. You may hear it on the radio called Chain Breaker. Uh, Zach Williams wrote it and does it. He wrote it along with Jonathan Smith and Mia Fields. It says, have you been walking the same old road for miles and miles? If you've been hearing the same old voice tell the same old lies... If you're trying to fill the same old holes inside, there's a better life. If you've got pain, he's a pain taker. If you feel lost, he's a way maker. If you need freedom or saving, he's a prison-shaking savior. If you've got chains, he's a chain If you've been walking the same old road for miles and miles If you've been hearing the same old voice tell the same old lies If you're trying to fill the same old holes inside There's a better life There's a better life If you got pain He's a pain taker If you feel lost, he's a way maker If you need freedom, save it He's a prison-shaking savior If you got chains, he's a chain-breaker We've all searched for the light of day and dead of night We've all found ourselves worn out from the same old fire We've all run to things we know just 
chains the Lord has broken? Testify, testify. I love that song. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. What was his food? To help humanity, to fulfill Isaiah 61. When he died, he said it is finished, meaning the work to provide our redemption was done. But the work of helping humanity, he told his disciples, go and make disciples. Go and preach the good news to the poor. Continue what he began. You want to feed Jesus? Help somebody. Do the will of the Father. His followers are sent to reap his sowing. After saying in John 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work, he said, do you not say there are still four months and then comes a harvest? You know, you plant and four months later you get the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields. They're already white for harvest. The planting time already happened. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together, for this, in this the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered in to their labors. There's delegation going on in this. There's a delegating using the metaphor of farming. Um, Someone plants. Someone sows. Guys, I'm fixing to sow my life. Another place he said, unless a corn of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone. So he 
died and arose from the dead, and we are the fruit of His resurrection. And we are to be about harvesting more fruit. His work is all about the harvest. Souls into His kingdom, transform lives into His family. Christ obeyed what He was shown to do, and our call is to obey what we're shown to do. He said in John 5, 19, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. He was so focused that He said, I can't do anything but what God has shown me to do. May we be that focused, amen? He was sent to do the works of His Father. He said, I must work the works of Him that sent me while it is day. The night is coming. The night cometh when no one can work. When is that night? It's coming. It's the, it's, it's the judgment that's coming upon the earth. But it hasn't happened yet because God is not willing that any should perish. So we've got a job to do, do we not? Night is coming. We must work the works of Him who sent us while it is day. There's a sense of urgency in this thing. Believers are called to continue His works. In John 14, Jesus, still teaching, said, Most assuredly, I say to you, He who believes in Me, the works that I do, He will do also, and greater works than these will He do, because I go to the Father. Now, people have debated for centuries about what the greater works are. I'm going to make it simple for you. We see it happening in Acts. Jesus started in Galilee and expanded to Judea and made a few-day mission into Samaria. He stayed in that part of the world conducting the Father's farm sowing seeds and reaping harvest, demonstrating the kingdom. Now it has busted out beyond those borders. It's going into Damascus, we've seen. And Paul's up in Tarsus at this point. The kingdom, that's the greater works. No longer are we just dealing with little square bales. Now we're in the big round bales. It's the kingdom And we're living in a day and time where there are meetings that are the biggest meetings where the gospel is proclaimed in the history of the world. When the gospel is preached on Christian TV, and it is, not always, but when it is, how many millions of people are tuned into that that have never heard before? We don't know. Now, a lot of people in the world don't know English. They don't have television. So we've still got our work to be done. Reinhard Bonnke has had up to a million people, over a million people in his crowds to hear the gospel. Greater works are being done. So we have a job to do to get involved in this greater work the Lord is doing. So we're called to continue his work. We're also called to follow his example. Who remembers the WWJD bracelet? When making a decision, think, what would Jesus do? And do that. That is based on this verse upon which a book was written called In His Steps that inspired that neat thing. I thought it was a neat thing. Peter wrote in the first letter that he wrote to the church, chapter 2, For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. 
He is your example, and you must follow in his steps. We must follow Christ's example, and it doesn't stop there. We must be an example for others to follow. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. The NIV says that. The New King James says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Are we that kind of Jesus follower where we can tell people, follow me and I'll show you the way? Oh no, that's much too prideful. Well, no, let's think about it. He predicated it following him based on as he followed Christ. If he ever stopped following Christ, he wasn't saying to follow me. But as I follow Christ, guys, watch me. Follow my example. May the Lord make us bold witnesses like that where we show people the way because we're walking in the way. May we not just tell people what to do, but may we show them what to do. May we be the mentors that people need. Here's a tough question. We heard it during our fellowship time during the Gary Paxton song. If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? In some of our major cities, homeless people and others dress up as Disney characters and Sesame Street characters and try to be uh, part of people's photos and selfies, hoping to make tips. And some people make a living. I heard of one guy who made over 200 bucks one day doing this. But on lean time, sometimes they get a little bit competitive and some things could go wrong. A few years ago, there was some reports of some unseemly incidents on Times Square. Spider-Man punched a police officer while resisting arrest for harassing a tourist. The cookie monster stood accused of shoving a two-year-old. Super Mario was charged for groping. Police spokesman Paul Brown said in an email that the department has had occasional issues with faux pas, P-A-W-S, on Times Square. (laughs) Elmo was booked for berating tourists with anti-Semitic slurs. Why all this? Is it just because they're wanting tips and the competition's too intense? According to one psychologist, he says, when we're anonymous, the unwritten rules of society, what's politically correct, fall by the wayside, and we might engage in acts that we wouldn't do if we were held accountable. But behind a mask, here comes... Here's the question. Is it the mask that causes it? Or is it the mask that causes the real us to come out? I don't know. But back to our question. Is my being a Christian a mask? Or is my being a Christian the real me? Only God can answer that question. That's something to approach the throne of grace for. Lord, I want be a Christian, that others can follow, one that's continuing the ministry that
that you began, Lord. I don't want to just be a Christian in name only. What is that, a crino? <laughs> want to be the real deal. Dr. Tony Evans asked the question, who are you? He writes, if I were to ask you who you are, would you tell me who you are without giving me your name, your occupation, job title, or other obvious means we use to identify ourselves? If I were to simply say, tell me who you are, what would you say? It's not that our name and occupation don't matter. These are valid. But there are plenty who know their names and occupations but still don't really know who they are at the core of their being. Therefore, they have no real sense of purpose in life. Who we are is found in whose we are. When you have no purpose for what you're doing, all you have left is a routine of what you're doing. Many trudge to work every day and home every night with little or no sense of why they do what they do. Who are you? Why do you do what you do? Since thinking about the purpose of life can raise uncomfortable questions, many hide behind routines. It becomes their escape, an excuse not to search for anything more. The routine may not be enjoyable, but at least it's safe. At least it's predictable. This is my rut, and I'm staying in it. You know what a rut is? A grave with both ends kicked out. Many of us have lost sight of the fact that life and its labor are gifts from God. We believe that we've earned our things. We get up in the morning and say, here's my agenda. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. Then we get aggravated and even angry when things interrupt our plans. We've forgotten that our lives are not our own. They are God's. And it is His work we are here to do. The plans, the timing, and our assignments are all His. For this reason... James warns us against setting our own agendas without saying, as the Lord wills. He reminds us that life is nothing more than a mist that vanishes in a short time and exhorts us to include God's will in our planning. No matter how important or successful the person, he has to remember that life is God's gift to him for a time period. Many a man has gone to his job and never come home again, made his plans for the year and suffered a heart attack, or arranged his schedule for the week and found himself under the surgeon's knife instead. We need to realize that even though life is given to us all, it is a gift. The condemnation of Romans 1 is that God gives man nature, the earth, this planet, a big, beautiful world. But not only were men ungrateful, they claimed it all as their own, as though they made it. It became their world along with their lives, their work, their plan, their families, their agendas, their purpose. Somewhere in their houses, they put God in a closet and became unthankful. The Bible says that people have turned their attentions towards creation and away from their creator. To put it another way, they forgot the giver and began to worship the gifts that he has given. This is an ultimate sin. A few decades ago, I found one of my daughters banging the doll I had given her for Christmas against the kitchen seat. Bang, bang, bang. I took the doll away from her. She said, but Daddy, it's my doll. You gave it to me. I can do what I want with it. 
Somehow she had understood that my giving her the doll had given her absolute independence of my judgment and right to do whatever she chose to do with it. To give her a better understanding of gift giving, I explained, yes, honey, this doll was your gift. I bought it for you for Christmas, and I want you to enjoy it. But there is one thing you must understand. I gave you the doll to play with and take care of, not to mistreat. If you misuse the gift, I'll have to take it back. The gift of life cannot really be enjoyed until it is received as a gift. Some people act as though they want to snatch life from God's hands and steal it when he isn't looking. They don't want a gift. They want self-willed ownership. They want a title to everything in their own name. God can't be fooled. He wants to give you life and stay in your life as an essential part of that gift. He also wants you to be thankful for the life he gives. We can refuse the gift if we don't like its terms, but there are no terms on which we can beg, borrow, or steal, or buy his abundant life. It's a gift. Merely existing is the only other alternative to his gift. If you've accepted the gift of life, how does God know you're thankful? He doesn't know you're thankful just because you go to church on the seventh or first day of each week. That may be a small part of it, but God is just as interested in your Monday through Fridays as he is your Lord's days. The proof of our thankfulness is in the fact that we let him govern our lives. Think for a moment about the prayer Jesus gave his disciples. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Think about his own prayer. Not my will, but yours be done. God's will is to be performed here on earth just as it is in heaven. In heaven, everybody and everything conforms to the will of God. It's his will, perfect, absolute, and only. God wants men who are so thankful for their lives that they surrender themselves to him out of genuine appreciation. So the proof of our being a Christian is to live in light of our redemption, out of appreciation and revelation for who he's made us to be and the mission he's included us in. But if we see life as our own thing, We'll lose a sense of thankfulness. We'll lose a sense of purpose. And guess what? We're going to hit some dead ends. But through him and his purposes, there are no dead ends. There's obstacles. There's things to overcome. But you know what there is anyway? The rain falls on the just and the unjust. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that we're called to continue your ministry. And Lord, it is easy when we realize our life is not our own. It is a gift to do with as you will. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity. I pray for my brothers and sisters that are here today, that they would leave here with a sense of purpose. Who can I help? Who needs some good news today? Who can I serve? Who can I forgive? Who can I demonstrate your unconditional love to? Who can I disciple and mentor? as well as who do I need to pursue to mentor me to help follow their example. Lord, help us all to grow in you and not just be church attenders, but to be the living, breathing body of Christ in the earth. Lord, we want to be like your hands and your feet, obeying your will. In Jesus' name.
have a sense that some may need to surrender their life afresh to the Lord. Giving your life to the Lord isn't, you know, five years ago I gave my life to the Lord or 25 years ago I gave my life to the Lord. It's to be this morning I gave my life to the Lord. When did you give your life to the Lord? This morning. Yesterday. The day before that. If you have to go, I understand, and you'll you'll be free to go in a moment, and nobody will think you're doing something that's not right. But um, if you don't have to go, why don't you just spend some time with God and surrender afresh to Him. Lord, I recognize that that the life you've given me is a gift, and I want to use it for your purposes. I want to live it out of a sense of appreciation to pursue what you want, not my will, but your will. Can you do that? As we sing, come to the altar again. Um, You can come to the altar and kneel at your chair. Just spend some time with God. If you have to go, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you His peace. May you live with a sense of purpose like you've never had before with eyes to see opportunities to fulfill the Great Commission. God bless you. Thank you for worshiping with us today. Commit your life to the Lord today. Again, I ask in Jesus' name.